I want you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Undoubtedly, most of you know this story. In my ESV, right before verse 17, it says, The rich young man. Verse 17, as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we know Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one's good. You know, the guy was being free with the term good, and Jesus checks him on that. And then he says this. Now notice the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. Do not murder. And he goes through the commandments. So, Matthew says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He says, you know the commandments. Matthew 19.17 says, keep the commandments. And Basically, the man, young man says, in Matthew's account of this, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? It says it a little bit different here in Mark. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. But in Matthew's account, he says, what do I still lack? Well, now that's, that's interesting. Say, think about this with me. You have this guy comes up. What must I do to obtain eternal life? Keep the commandments. Well, he, in his own estimation, he had. Why would he ask beyond that? Isn't that case closed? Jesus says, keep these commandments. Those commandments I've kept. I must have eternal life. Did you notice he didn't come to that conclusion? He says, what do I still lack? That's Matthew's account. What do I still lack? Why ask that? If you've kept all the commandments, case closed. I I would say this. Probably it has to do with conscience. Why? Because here's a man who's under the law, and he's trying to keep the law, and he's a slave to the law. What does the law say? Do me. Do me. Do this and live. That's what the law said. Do, do, do. Keep on going. Keep on. Not enough. Not enough. Not enough. Work. 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 That's what the law says. you got to keep doing it. There's no mercy. There's no grace with the law. The law is strict. you got to do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Saves of the, of the law, they have this voice in their ear. Work. 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 So that's probably where it's coming from. Jesus, look at this. Verse 21. Jesus looking at him, loved him. I love that. And you know, we're going to get to a place here where the man walks away sorrowful. But you know, I wonder. It doesn't tell us how Jesus felt when he walked away. Jesus has some words 
for his disciples who are watching this whole thing unfold. But you know, Jesus was a man of sorrows. Can you imagine Jesus? He loved him. And to have this man just point blank reject and refuse Christ and choose his money instead and walk away. I wonder if Jesus wasn't also sorrowing. Do you see what Jesus is saying to this man? He says to him, one thing you lack. Young man, you're talking about eternal life. And you know what? He went to the right place. What better place could you go to ask that question than to the Lord Jesus Christ himself? And what does Jesus say? I want you. He doesn't say it in exactly these words, but you know full well this is what he's saying. Young man, I want you to surrender your wealth to me. Follow me. Follow me. In other words, let go of what you trust, young man, and trust me. Stop relying on your riches. And you know what happened here? This man failed the greatest test of his life. You see it. And you know what? When Jesus says, surrender all your finances. You notice the man, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't question it. He doesn't say, oh, that, that's not required. Notice he doesn't argue. Nothing. And you know what? As much as Jesus loved him, Jesus doesn't negotiate. You know what? Jesus doesn't even say one other word to him. He lets him walk away. Because if you won't trust Jesus more than your money, you can't be saved. Jesus doesn't plead. He doesn't beg. He doesn't add any other information here. Why? Why not? Because it's not necessary. It's not necessary to say anything else to anyone if you will not trust Christ more than anything else you put confidence in. And listen, folks, it is no mystery that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't serve God in money. Because money as much as anything in this world vies for our confidence and our trust. That's it. The issue is this. Who is the Lord of your money? That's, that's precisely what the point is. When you say, I am. I'm the Lord of my money. Case closed. Case closed. You will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And I say that on good authority. Notice, folks, this is no parable. This is a real life encounter. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. And Jesus looked around, verse 23, and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom 
of God. I mean, what does that mean? How difficult it, after what they just saw unfold, for Jesus to turn to them and say how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying? He's clearly indicating that the man, that man who just walked away is not going to enter the kingdom. Period. That's precisely what he means. This man is a living demonstration of that very truth. Let me tell you about another rich man. Want to see him? Because this one's exciting. Zacchaeus. Who can tell me where Zacchaeus is found? What chapter of your Bible? Luke 19. Let's go there. You got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We were just in Mark. Now you go to Luke. Go to Luke 19. And we're going to find... I mean, this is just so instructive. Luke... 19, you got this guy Zacchaeus. Look at verse 2. Luke 19, give you time to all get there. Verse 1 says this happened in Jericho. There was a man named Zacchaeus. Notice this, he was a chief tax collector and was rich. There it is, he was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. You see that in verse 3? He's seeking Jesus. And verse 4 says, He ran on ahead. He climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Him. You see, He he wants to get to Jesus. And, And it's not like the other guy who was just asking for another thing to put on his resume by which he might have eternal life. This guy's really taken up with Jesus. Zacchaeus wants Jesus. Verse 5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. You better believe that that just filled his heart with joy. He He wanted nothing else than to find Jesus, to see Jesus, and to have Jesus actually, what was he doing? This guy was short. There was a crowd. There was people all around. He was lost in the crowd. He got up in the tree. Can you imagine? His heart was set on. He wanted to see him. Oh, if I could just see him. And not only did he see him, Jesus stops in the crowd, looks up in the tree, and actually talks to him. And says, come on down. I'm here for no other reason than this. I must. Don't you love that? I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried, verse 6, and came down and received him joyfully. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord. Now, I just find this absolutely amazing. Jesus doesn't say anything to him. He doesn't say, you need to go sell everything and give to the poor and come follow me and you have treasure. He doesn't say anything to him. All he said to him was, Zacchaeus, come down. I got to go to your house today. And he comes down and Zacchaeus is so happy and he's so full of joy. And it's like, out of all the things that he could have said, Lord, I'm going to stop being unfaithful to my wife and I'm going to, I'm going to love her from now on. It wasn't that. Out of all the things he could have said, notice what he said. Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to, I'll restore fourfold. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Wow. Have you ever read that? God loves a cheerful giver. We read that not too long ago. 
God loves a cheerful giver. Here's this guy walking away sorrowful. I mean, I just ask you this. You hear a message from the Bible about God wanting you to serve Him, not mammon, not money. Jesus saying, I'm going to be Lord of your money. How do you walk away? Do you walk away sorrowful when you hear that? Or do you, are you like Zacchaeus? This is the greatest thing imaginable. Jesus actually took notice of me. And, and he's, he's jumping out of his shoes. Like, I want to give half of it away to the poor. Lord, that's what I'm going to do. And isn't it amazing? When a guy won't do that, he says, this guy, he's not entering the kingdom. When the guy does it, he says, salvation has come to this house. You know what? What we do with our money is very closely connected with life and death. So much so that sometimes given our usual conception of saved by grace through faith, sometimes we can hardly even think this way. Sometimes we pass over things that Scripture say that we know what it sounds like it says, but because we, we know what other verses say, we just kind of ignore. So what are you talking about? Let me show you what I'm talking about. Turn in your Bibles now to 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6. And verse 17, as for the rich in this present age. You know why some people can't hear this? I'm not rich. Okay, we've dealt with a rich young ruler. We've dealt with Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector and he was wealthy. Now, Paul is talking in 1 Timothy 6 to the rich in this present age. So, you know what we can do? We can, we can dodge these statements because we're not rich. <clears throat> Have you ever got online and like looked at a world income calculator that show it will show you based on what your family brings in each year it'll show you where you rank in the world's wealth Listen to this. The median. I don't want to get into statistical analysis, but basically median is the center point. The average. Guess what the medium, the, the median income worldwide, that amount which is 
dead middle between the least and the highest if you if you basically took the curve of where everybody's at and you'd put a line in the middle which do you think yes a year yes It's, it's on the low end, brother. It's $850, which is roughly 685 pounds at the current exchange rate. 685 pounds. You're in the middle. Listen to this. If after tax, this is after tax. If after tax, you bring home 10,000 pounds per year. You are richer than 86% of the world. If after tax you bring home 20,000 pounds per year, you're richer than 95% of the world. If after tax you bring home 30,000 pounds, you're richer than 98% of the world. And if you bring home, after tax, 40,000 pounds, you are more wealthy than 99% of the world. Now look, how they come up with these values, obviously to figure these out for the whole world, there's different assumptions and different Different analytics is going to result in different things, but you know what? That's roughly accurate. Do you know this? How many people are in the world? Do you know what number we just surpassed? Eight billion. Eight billion. Did you know this? Three billion people live on $2 a day or less. You know what that is? One pound, 65. Three billion people. You know what? Kenya, where I just came from, which actually, although it's got some really bad slums, it's actually one of the wealthier countries in Africa. 1,625 pounds per year is the average income in Kenya. You know what Jesus did? He looked at his disciples and he said this. He said, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now listen. Back to 1 Timothy, because that's where you are. 1 Timothy 6, as for the rich. If you say I'm not rich, then you're not being honest with the statistics. Don't say that. In this country, we are rich. Even the people living on the government system and receiving welfare from this government You walk through that slum, 
And you know what you find? People living on 300 shillings a day. You know how much that is? It's not much. It's like that $2 range. They're trying to get the basic needs. We've been in people's houses where a house full of seven children. Mom was off at work. Sam said, I want to see your food. They took us to the kitchen. They didn't have any food. They weren't going to eat that day unless mom came home with some money. Now listen to this. 1 Timothy 6.17, as for the rich, you can't excuse yourself. We are in that place. Now I know you can find other people in Middleton who make more than you, who make 10 times more than you. I recognize that. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Because you know what? Having money often goes along with pride. Why? Because people, people think they're important if they have money. People think that people with less money ought to bow down and serve them. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Why? Because that's what rich people do. But on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And you see that. Paul's not condemning people that have money or even using some of that money to enjoy the things of life. But notice this, verse 18, they're to do good. Rich in good works. Generous. Ready to share. Now notice this, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Now we're all okay there. You know, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. We have this idea. But then look at this. So that. And you just want to do capture those two words. So that. They may take hold of that which is truly life. Or the KJV says that they may lay hold on eternal life. What? You know, oftentimes we can read a verse like that. Well, we don't know what that means, but we just kind of go beyond it because we've got our theology already figured out. And see, we don't want verses like that to impinge upon our theology. So we don't really pay a whole lot of attention. If we're honest and we stand still, I mean, come on, be honest with me. You want, to, you want to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and be ready to share so that you might take hold of that which is truly life or that which is eternal life? Let me tell you something. Jesus is not afraid to connect salvation with how we handle our money and to connect death with how we handle our money. Scripture talks like that. You cannot serve God and money. And if you try to do both, you will perish. It is easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than for those with money and riches and wealth to enter the kingdom. You know what that means? It means that Americans 
and the British, those of us in the West, it's very difficult for us to get to heaven just on the basis of money. You're denying what Jesus says if you come to any other conclusion. I mean, look, Paul's not messing around. What does it sound like it's saying? I I just ask all of you, what does it sound like it's saying there in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, verse 19, storing up treasure for themselves, that's good. Good foundation for the future, that's good. But so that, so that, do all this so that you may take hold of that which is truly life? Yeah, yeah, that's how Scripture talks. And we shouldn't be afraid to talk that way as well. You know what? I want us to take hold of eternal life. And is is it? You just can't get around this. You know what? Would you talk that way? We wouldn't talk that way. We don't like that. That sounds like works. It sounds sounds like you have to do something. Well, you know what? It really has to do with what you trust. It has everything to do with where your faith is. You know what it's basically saying is God breaking your stinginess is a title to eternal life. It's like, you remember Pilgrim's Progress? He lost his scroll. You remember that? Went up the hill of difficulty and there was an arbor there and he kind of rested and the scroll fell out. And then he had to run back. As he found, he went to look for it to give him comfort and it was gone. Well, you know what? That scroll, it's, it's like the Bible talks about the scroll to produce for eternal life will be, were you self-serving? Were you stingy? And if you don't think so, then you've forgotten already. Don't be like James talks about where you look in the mirror and you forget. Judgment day. I was hungry, you fed me. You're on the right. I was hungry, you didn't feed me. You're on the left. You see, good works. I was in prison, you visited me. I was in prison, you didn't visit me. I was sick, you visited me. You see how he's dividing? You see, I'll tell you this. Your money is a dead giveaway. And there are people in this room who will not enter the kingdom because you haven't surrendered. And look, there's other areas of our life as well. But isn't it interesting out of all the things that Jesus could have said, he said you can't serve God and money. You could have put a million other things in there. You can't serve God in anything else. But why out of all the things that accumulate to all else, would it be money? You know why? You know what money is? I mean, you haul out a, you haul out a bill it's like it's relatively useless little piece of paper. But you know what money does? You know what money is? Money represents basically what man can do. Right? When, when money can purchase what man has for sale. That's and you put your trust there. You know what you're putting your trust? You're, you're basically putting your trust in what man can do rather than what God can do.
Folks, we're rich. And I just say this, what makes it so difficult for rich people like us to get to heaven? You know this. Money has a way of making us content, self-satisfied. It makes us smug. It makes us not need God. It makes us not desperate. Money, oh, it makes us so confident. It's so easy to put your hope there. I've got money in the account. I've got money saved up. I need to build bigger barns. Why? I'm going to be able to just live it up and go on vacations and retire well. And you're not, you're not looking for resources outside yourself. Why? You, you got it in the bank. You know what riches do? Riches tend to make us, well, for one thing, Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there's where your heart is. You know what? You got money in the bank. You're always looking at the bank. You got money invested in stocks. You're always looking at the stocks. Wherever your treasure is, you build bigger barns and put all your grain in there. You're always looking at that barn. You're always looking at the grain. You're always seeing whether the rats are eating. The... You're, you're always concerned with it. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Riches help us to just justify excess. Riches help us to justify ease. And buying more stuff. It, it is what it does. Rich people are typically selfish people. And the more people have, the less they give. And we're rich. Don't, don't see the problem is that usually when I start talking about the rich, we're able to distance ourselves. Why? Just simply because we don't have the riches that Donald Trump has. That doesn't fly. That doesn't fly when most of you have a family income of more than 10,000 pounds, which equates to being in the top 14 percentile of all of humanity. And most of you make more than that. And so we have to stand before God in the end. I mean, if you're in this bracket where you're in the top 14 percent, or if you're, if you're making 30,000 pounds take home, you're in the top 98%. Can you imagine? What are you going to say? You stand before God and you're in, you're in the top 2% or 1% of all the people on the faith. Well, I wasn't rich. Three billion people in this world made $2 a day. You weren't rich. You know what happens? Statistically speaking, the more people make, the less they give percentage-wise. And what happens is we, we can give, but we're always, we're always careful to not give so much that it impacts our lifestyle. You know one thing about the rich? Rich people, they, they have discretionary funds. You know what I mean by that? Rich people have extra. And that's true of everybody here. I doubt there is anybody here that if you wanted a new pair of shoes, you couldn't go out and buy it. Now, you might have to say no to certain other things, but we've got flexibility. We've got discretionary funds available to us. 
money to do with what we want. And you know what? Many in this world, they don't have any such luxury. When you're waiting for mom to come home, and if she didn't come home with any money, if she didn't find work this day, we don't eat. Bottom line. And you know what? When they do eat, a slice of white bread, perhaps, they called it, what, dark tea? When it's all said and done and it's our turn to stand before the Lord, you know what I want for this church? I want us to be like Zacchaeus. Joyful. Like, seriously? We have Christ, this inexpressible gift, and He paid attention to us, and He's called us to come down out of that tree, and He's set His sights on us, and He's saying, you can have me. Come follow me. You can have me. You just, just surrender your... Surrender this part of your life and I'll take good care of you. I'll be a shepherd to you. And what are we going to say? No, we can't trust you. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You know what? You know what this tells us? We need to be careful. You know what it tells us? Money is dangerous. And we need to be careful with how we handle it. We need to abominate selfishness, greed, any sort of financial security where I'm resting not on God, not on His promises, but I'm resting on, on what the world rests on, not God. Listen, here's some surprising verses. As I go through, I, I take note of this over the years. As I'm going through the Bible, just these verses jump out at me. Do you remember when... Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And basically, there was this tree and it got lopped off. And Daniel's like, ah, oh, Nebuchadnezzar. He's at, see, Nebuchadnezzar's looking for an interpretation and Daniel had already interpreted for Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel's saying, ah, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, I, I wish, I could wish what this dream means upon your enemies. And it was basically the prediction that he was going to go around eating grass with the wild animals for seven years. You remember that? Do you rem- hey, did you ever catch this? Daniel pleads with Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to what he says. Oh, king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Isn't that amazing? That the, the thing that Daniel would go after is Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe God will hold off if you just show mercy to the oppressed. How about this? Do you remember this? The Apostle Paul went to Jerusalem and there were these guys who were pillars. James, Peter, John. And Paul says, they perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. That we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised only. They asked us to remember the poor the very thing I was eager to do. You know, statements like that, you you can kind of just lose them in there. 
But isn't that interesting? It's like as, as Paul was getting ready to go out among the Gentiles, out of all the things that could be said, Paul said they, they, they added nothing to my gospel. But they said, Paul, as you go out among all these places, would you remember this? Remember the poor? And Paul doesn't say, wow, that never crossed my mind. He said, you know what? That was the very thing I was minded to do. If there's something the gospel is meant to set free in people, it's a dependence. It's a hoarding. It's a storing up in this world. It's, remember the two great commandments. I mean, we, we are to love God. But you can't, you can't ever say you love the God you haven't seen if you're not loving your brother who you do see. Loving your neighbor. You can't say you love your neighbor. if you're. And, and you know what? We can say, well, in this country. Yeah, in this country. Maybe you have such government policies and welfare system. But you know what? The world's a big place out there. And we know people laboring in a number of different places among the poor. Listen to this. Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah, speaking for the Lord, says to the sons of Josiah, do you think you're a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father, Josiah, eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. Now listen to this. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord? I mean, that ought to blow you away. What is it to know God? What would you say? I mean, how would you have answered that question if I wasn't even on this subject and I had just come in here today and said, what do you think it means to know God? Would you have said to help the poor? That's what God says. How about this? We think about an excellent wife. Proverbs 31. Who can find? She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. Or how about this? Ezekiel. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Now we might say, well, we know the guilt of Sodom. Do we? She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, and did not aid the poor and the needy. How about this? This, this is almost, see, this doesn't fit our system. I, think, I love when Scripture does not fit. Here's this guy, Cornelius. Who is this guy? Who is, he's, he's one of these guys that was in a strange place. He's like a God-fearing Gentile who apparently needed the gospel preached to him in order that he and his household might be saved. And yet, before the gospel is preached to him, you know what the angel said 
to Cornelius. Your alms, your prayers and your alms. You know what alms is? Cornelius gave to the poor. Listen to this. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. John Wesley says, based on that statement, see, we don't like that. What does that mean? Does that mean that here's a guy that's not saved yet, but his alms have come up? I thought our righteousnesses were filthy rags. Don't we read that somewhere? How is it that an angel can actually say, your almsgiving actually has come up before God as a memorial, not some wretched thing that just has no acceptance before Him. We we don't even know what to do with these. It doesn't fit our system. It's almost like the angel saying, well, you know, you're worthy to have this. Because... Because of your prayers and your wealth, we don't like that. But Wesley was honest with it. He said, look, the lack of even things like almsgiving may be the cause why God withholds grace and salvation from us. No, we don't like that. We look at Wesley, oh yeah, that guy's rank Arminian. Can I possibly believe what he's saying? I would say this, can we possibly believe what the book of Acts says when the angel says, you know what? Your almsgiving has come up before God as a memorial. Before he's even converted and he tells them, you know what, you need to send off for this guy, Simon, who's over at a guy, Simon's house, the tanner, and you need to call for him because he's got words by which you and your household will be saved. We don't even know what to do with things like that. But you know what you can do with it? You can certainly recognize that Giving alms to the poor is something highly esteemed by God. Highly. Out of all the things Zacchaeus could have said, Lord, half of everything I have, I'm going to give to the poor. First thing out of his mouth. Listen. Turn to Luke 16. Where are we at? How long have I been preaching? I don't want to unnecessarily keep us. Where are we at? We're not even at 3.30 yet. How long have I been preaching? 45. But plenty of time, right? Luke 16. Verse 9. Brethren, listen Charles Spurgeon, you know what? On his 50th birthday celebration, a list of societies and institutions was read out. You know why it was on his birthday? Because Spurgeon wanted people to give him birthday presents. And he specifically would talk about all the societies and institutions in his church because he gave all that. Spurgeon was one of the biggest givers. On his 50th birthday, there were 69 societies 
and institutions affiliated with the Metropolitan Tabernacle that he mentions. He says there were also more. Before they are read out, Spurgeon said, I think everybody should know what the church has been moved to do. And I beg to say that there are other societies besides those which will be mentioned. But you'll be tired before you get to the end of them. And finishes after the list by saying we have need to praise God that he enables the church to carry on all these institutions. Spurgeon's encouragement for the members of the tabernacle was to be involved in these ministries. Spurgeon, you know what? When he got to the end, when he died, he left his wife 2,000 pounds. And that was it. He, get, he made, you think of all his, his books, all his sermons, all that was given to him. He gave it all away. Millions. And you know what he said? I don't believe in the government doing anything well. I generally feel sorry when anything has to be left to government. I have a very small opinion of the whole lot. There are some things that we should try ourselves to do as long as we ever can. But if we're driven up a corner, it may come to what I fear. And he said, bones must be set, the sick cared for, the poor must not be left to die in order not to have to go to government for help. So let's all try to give what we can. It's our duty to give, not merely as Christians, but as men. And he said, in every minister's life, leading people in the charge here, there should be traces of stern labor. Brethren, he said, do something. I mean, when, when we're talking about all these ministries, brethren, do something, do something, do something. While committees waste their time over resolutions, do something. While societies and unions are making constitution, let us win souls. Too often we discuss and discuss and discuss while Satan only laughs in his sleeve. Get to work. Quit yourselves like men. He had an orphanage. Poor kids. Boys and girls. He had a coal portage association. What was that? Door-to-door ministry. They would go door to door. They would minister to the poor. They would visit the sick. They would hold meetings, Bible studies in places. They also sold Bibles, sold books, sold things like that. But they, they had an ordinance poor fund. They distributed money among the poor in the church. They had a ladies' benevolent society. They made clothes for the poor, almshouses for housing the poor, ragged schools for poor children, day schools for training poor adults, Sunday schools, book fund for poor pastors, evangelization of the poor blind, home working society gave money to families of poor pastors, ladies maternal society aid to poor mothers and and pregnant mothers. You know how much of those ministries that Spurgeon had dealt with the poor? And I recognize we can look around. Undoubtedly, There are places here in this city where we can find the poor, where we can find the needy, where we can find the blind and the halt and the maimed, where we can find the imprisoned, where we can find the sick. But you know what? We may have to look outside of this country. We may have to look at at other places. Brother, one of the things I want you to think about as we enter the new year and we start it with prayer and fast and we think about what this church should be doing. Look, there's there's two things. One is your personal giving before God. The other thing are the funds that have accumulated in the church's account that we also have an accountability to. I don't like those funds being there. Why? There's too many needs in the world. We need to empty those accounts. And you know what? The fact is, 
that it, it's just, it's chafed at me to have that money there. It's chafed at me to only be giving Andy and Dan 250 pounds per month when there's such vast needs and the poor that are being ministered to, affiliated with both of their ministries, quite honestly, brethren, 250 pounds to people with the kind of wealth we have is, I, I won't put all the adjectives I'd like to put on that, but folks, Luke 16, verse 9, I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. What in the world does... I mean, you just got to take all that in. For one thing, the Lord Jesus Christ calls money unrighteous. If you've got the King James Bible, it says unrighteous mammon. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't just say the love of money is evil or unrighteous. He calls money itself unrighteous. And he says, make friends. In other words, you know what he's saying here? You need to use it, but be careful how you use it. Why? Because people with it often don't make the kingdom. Why? Because it's very difficult for rich people to get into the kingdom. Remember that easier for a camel through the eye of a needle. Make friends so that when it the unrighteous wealth fails. Is it going to fail? Yep, you're going to die. And then it's failed because you can't use it anymore. The moment you die, it's gone. You, you have no more opportunity. Is that day coming? You better believe it's coming. And what should you do? So that when it fails, they, who's the they? The friends. What friends did you make? The people you helped. The people you aided. Think about Spurgeon. Think about all the people that received him. You give all that money to poor mothers and to the ragged schools and to the almshouses and to the orphanages and all the poor. And that's not to mention what he was giving to missionaries that were working in other places and they were working among the poor there. You see what that says? When it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the, here it is again, unrighteous wealth. He doesn't just say it once. Who will entrust to you the true riches? What are the true riches? Obviously not the unrighteous wealth. The true riches is what God bestows upon you if you've been a faithful steward with the unrighteous wealth. Then you get the true riches. We Aren't we fools? If, if we live for this world and live for money, money's unrighteous. Why? Because money in and of itself, it's characterized by a lack of integrity. How do I mean? It's dishonest. You ever notice that about money? It, money is untrustworthy. Money makes all sorts of promises to us, doesn't it? Oh, if you just have me, you'll be happy. It, you know what money does? 
You know how the world talks? If you could have one wish, what would you have? Oh, I'd want to win the lotto. I don't know if you have that here, but that was always a thing in the U.S. Why? Money excites hope. It excites expectation. Confidence. But you know what? Money's a liar. Because it doesn't deliver. You know what money can't give you? Money can't give you love. It can't buy that. It can't buy health. It can't buy happiness. You know what? Money has a distinct reputation for not coming through. Get that new job. Get more money. Buy that new car. Have you ever known the statistics? You, what do you think? You think rich people or poor people are more likely to commit suicide? You know what? Money can't buy happiness. It can't buy closeness to Christ. It can't buy peace of mind. It can't buy save children. It can't buy revival. It can't prevent death. And, and most certainly, what Jesus says here is going to come true. What? It's going to fail. One day, it's all going to be taken away. You know what? Who do you want to be? You want to be like Wesley? He gave it all away. What did he have? He had a few coins and some a spoon or something. Spurgeon. He gave it all away and he had 2,000 pounds for his wife, which I know in the 1890s was a decent sum, plus a paid-for house and whatever else. I mean, he, she was provided for. But notice this. Notice this. Faithful. This word comes up four times in rapid succession. One who is, verse 10, one who is faithful in very little, also faithful in much. Verse 11, if then you have been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, or if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's. You see what he's saying here? That which is another's. That is the unrighteous mammon. It's not yours. It's his. That's why he comes along and he tells people what to do with it. And if they don't do what he wants them to do with it, they can't enter the kingdom. That's the narrow way. It's obeying the voice of Christ. It's believing he is indeed the Savior, He's going to save me from everything I need to be saved from. And one of the things He's going to save me from is dependence on the dollar bill or the, or the British pound. He's going to save me from that. And we need to be saved from that. And if you're faithful, faithful, no servant can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Faithful. Faithful. You see what's being said here? Faithful. Are you being faithful? Because we have to answer it. It's His. And how we use it, we're going to have to give... In, in the end, we're going to have to give an account to Him. Now listen. I was so gripped by this early on. So gripped by this. Brother Andy, he came there to San Antonio and he just said, I saw this. He said, I thought preaching, I thought training men 
I thought trying to plant churches, that was how the kingdom would expand. He said, you know what I saw? He said, I saw Isaiah 58 come to life. Share your bread with the hungry. Bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, cover him. Don't hide yourself for your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Then, then, then. It doesn't say regardless of whether you pay attention to the poor or not. What is that? The thick, dark clouds. You know how it is in the morning here? You've got the cloud cover, and all of a sudden there will be a break, and the sun comes through, and the light shine. And Isaiah is saying that is how it is when you give yourself. And Andy came there when we were just a fledgling little church, and he said, I've seen this come to life over there in the Far East. I've seen this. He said, I thought it was proper doctrine and training. And he said, those things are important. But he said, my wife, she came with this compassion of Christ and she began to reach out to the poor. And he said, he did things and opened doors and such things happened. He became so convinced of this. And when he said it in the power of the Spirit way back there in the beginning, I said, yes, this is the very foundation. We need to plant this church in San Antonio and live on these principles and this basis. Give our money to the poor. Give it all away. Help people. Love people until we don't have anything left and see what God will do. And he says, he gives these promises. Healing. Healing. Oh, divisions. You know, we never had a major split there. Why? You can trace it back to things like this. God says, I will heal. You pour yourself out for the hungry. I'll heal. You've got, you've got things that need healing. You've got sores of division or deep-rooted sin that's like some cankerous cancer. I'll heal that. And it's true. He does such things. Righteousness that goes before us. That's what he says. God will not allow our righteousness to be hidden. It'll be this testimony. Folks, you know, he wants the world to behold our good works. Why? To give glory to him. Rear guard. That's what he said. Those are the promises. God will be our rear guard. Who's at the rear? You know how it was with Israel traveling around in the, in the wilderness? What happened? The stragglers would be at the back. The sick. Those that could only travel slowly. And God's saying, you know what? The weak, the feeble in the church, I'll watch over them. They won't fall away. And, and then he says this. He, he says that he will... He will respond when we pray. He says, you shall call, the Lord will answer. You shall cry, He will say, here I am. Immediately coming to our aid. His presence. Here I am. I'm here, I'm present. To refresh, to comfort, to support, to supply, to protect, to defend. The sense is this, if we go to God in prayer, you know what? This happens in so many churches. Folks, the Reformed community is full of this. People that come, they want to hear proper doctrine. They want to go through the motions. They sing the hymns. They go home and they basically live their comfortable, middle class, very wealthy compared to the rest of the world, not rich towards God kind of lives. And then they, they might, a lot of Reformed churches don't have prayer meetings. The ones that do, they, the people come, you know, you come in and pray. 
What's God saying? Is God saying whether you pour yourself out for the hungry or whether you give yourself to the homeless poor, that it's irregardless of that God is going to answer? That's not what he says. He says, then, 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 these realities will be there. It's like the gloomiest times of your lives, of your church's life will be like high noon. I'll personally guide you with my counsel, with my eye, by my son, through my word, with the spirit. He says, you're going to be like a watered garden when it's all dry and you're thirsty and where's Christ? When other people are languishing, you won't. You'll be like this well-watered place, watered by the Lord himself with rain and dew, his grace, like a spring of water. Oh, what, what do we want? We want to be a church that's like got this great fountain that just erupts and, and the waters of life flow out of it. That's what God's promising. Water. And then you always, he says that you'll, you'll rebuild the ruined places. Think about all the places in this world that are ruined. Ruin sounds like, well, maybe at one time they weren't, but then sin came in and wrecked it, ruined it. This was a country full of revival. Now you look around, look at Manchester. It's just when it, spiritually speaking, this is a city of wreckage. Where are, where are the Gadsby's and all the 600 children that were in, in that poor Sunday school that they had there? Where are the McLarens? I mean, it's like these guys have come and they're gone. Where's the, that holy Bradford of old that was murdered just across the motorway from us? It's like, what, what has happened? The wreckage. But if you pour yourself out this way, you just give and give and give and give. What is he saying? You'll be the restorer of the breach. Those places that are all wreckage, it'll be like brand new ramparts and brand new buildings will be built up. Folks, and, I'm, and I just say this in conclusion. Listen to this. Listen carefully. Fear not, little flock. You want to talk about being a cheerful giver? Just listen to this. This is Jesus speaking to you. Fear not, little flock. Who talks that way but a shepherd? Fear not, little flock. Why? What would we fear over? This is Luke 12, by the way. Don't turn there, but listen. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Sell your possession. Sell. That's a command. Jesus commands you to prove. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Jesus commands you to provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old. He commands that. Why? Why? The idea is this. Love your neighbor. Job actually said, I search out the cause of those who are in need. We can put blinders on. 
Don't want to know. Don't show me. I don't want to see. Don't. Just, I, I can look up and down my street and everybody's got food. I, I don't want to see. You know what Jesus is saying? Love your neighbor enough not to hoard your stuff. Sell it. Show that money's not your God. Show that you serve the living Christ and not the British pound. Show it. Show your freedom from money. Show that you're free from it. Show your Christ freed man. And you can be like Zacchaeus. Show that Christ is truly your treasure, not this world's fleeting stuff. Show forth that love of God by sharing, by giving more and more and more of what you have. Fear not, little flock. Why would he say that? Because we tend to be afraid. Oh no, what if I give it all away? What if I sell my things? What if I, what if I did that? If I give that much to the church or we give that much to Andy or we give that much to Dan to care for the poor with, that makes me afraid. Why? Because I don't know where I'm going to have food from 10 months down the road. You know what? Live for today. We may not be here 10 months down the road. You only get one chance. Brothers and sisters, you get one shot at this. One life will soon be passed. And it's over. And many of us were well advanced. Don't be afraid. Don't you know? Lord, Lord, don't you know? about the high energy costs in this country? Haven't you heard? And what does he say? Don't be afraid. Little flock. See, we have as a shepherd. You don't have to fear. Why? Because remember the promise of Isaiah 58? If you give, 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 then when you say, Lord, you cry out, you call upon him, what's he going to say? Here I am. That doesn't mean he'll be there, but you'll have no sense of it. That's not what that means. When he says, I'll be there, it means I'm going to answer you. When, if you've been merciful and you come to be in need, I'm on it. That's what that means. And you know what? It's not just that we have a shepherd. We have a father. Listen to how it says, fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure. You see how he kind of mixes? You got flock and you got father. We would almost expect fear not, little children, for it's your father's good pleasure. But it's like he compounds this. You have a shepherd. You have a father. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags. That do not grow old. With a promise like that, if we really believe it, then among all the people on the face of this earth, what do you think we ought to be living? And what do you think our lives ought to look like and our bank accounts ought to look like that's different from the rest of the world? 
We got to strive to live more selfless in 2023, more generous, more rich towards God, even at great risk to ourselves. Look, you will never outgive God. Lay it down. And then this, this is, I just end with this. This is how he's been so precious to me. Keep your life free from the love of money. Why? Be content with what you have. Why? Because he said this, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. When, it, when God says that, you, you don't have to love money. You can be content. Why? Because I'll never leave you or forsake you. Don't you recognize I'm here? Don't you recognize if you give it all away? What do you think I'm going to let you starve? You think I'm not going to take care of your family? You see, we get this opportunity. Zacchaeus felt it. If you really feel it, it will make you a cheerful giver. God doesn't want this to be drudgery where it's extracting wisdom teeth, like our brother George just had pulled out of his head. You don't want it to be like that. It's like Zacchaeus is like, this is the greatest opportunity in the world. I can give half my stuff away. Seriously? Christ paid attention to me? And I can give half of it away for the poor? And store up money bags like that? And even if I gave it all away, like the widow with her two mites or what? It's like, I'll never leave you or forsake you. You don't have to fear, little flock. We don't have to fear being extravagant givers. And I have basically just bided my time since I've been here, but now it's time to really be honest with Scripture with you folks and say, okay, I'm going to lead this church down this path where I want you to not fear, little flock, and I want you to have the kind of money bags that Jesus is talking about. There's nothing carnal about that. Jesus would not have made a promise like that about anything that's carnal. This is totally spiritually and totally something you want. We want to make friends to receive us into the eternal dwellings. And I want to do everything I possibly can to lead this church to maximize that. Okay. Well, I'm going to finish in prayer. Father, I pray that you would help guide us and give us the grace, the grace to usher in a new season of generosity as your people, as a church, one of the lampstands in the midst of which Christ walks. Lord Jesus, as you walk in our midst, I pray that in these coming days of business meeting, prayer and fasting, thinking about finances, thinking about our own personal finances, thinking about these ministries that we're involved with in other parts of the world, I pray, Lord, I desire to help lead these folks 
these brothers and sisters to maximize the reception at those eternal dwellings, to maximize these money bags that you tell us that we should pursue after, to maximize putting our riches in that place where our heart will be so that our heart will be set upon things above, not on things on this earth. Lord, loosen the heart strings that have attachment to this world and to the money here and the stuff here. Help us to be the most lavish, the most giving. Lord, I pray Grace Fellowship Manchester would would just comparatively speaking, relatively speaking, oh, I pray that this would be the, the most giving church on this island. Lord, help us. Help us. I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.